Each evening we'll explore different aspects of our practice with the aim of giving some uh, illumination, energy, inspiration, and um, other good qualities for our, our practice. The invitation that I'd like to give in terms of listening to the talks is really to listen with your whole being, sometimes to stay connected with one's body, not so much to listen only on the level of content, but in a way to let the talk tonight and other talks um, be able to connect with different parts of your being, you know, your mind, your heart, your body, your spirit, so to speak. I'd like to explore tonight the way that we can use our theme of being here at the winter solstice and both embracing the dark and inviting the light as a way to help uh, clarify our practice and a lot of the themes of our practice. So to use themes of solstice, of dark and light to um, help us uh, practice more skillfully. And so first to just remind us of this special time uh, around the winter solstice. We had the full moon last night. Literally, solstice means the sun standing still. And it was a very special time in most uh, cultures up till now. This transition point between the growing dark and the growing light. And for many cultures, it was connected with the mystery of rebirth and the mystery of things coming alive again, of the natural world coming alive again. Many of the great... uh, standing stones of different cultures, such as Stonehenge, were set, we know now, to be able to uh, be attuned, in the case of Stonehenge, to the sunset on the winter solstice. And in some cultures, the winter solstice was the time when the gods were reborn and we could, in a way, follow the lead. And in our culture, it's different. (laughs) And it's really mixed. I mean, we have aspects of some of the traditional cultural dimensions. We have New Year's resolutions. We have, uh, at times, uh, for, for many of us, a time of less work, maybe being more with the family, or the extended family, or friends. 
And I think that that really brings forth some of the traditional understandings. And we also have what I think can only be described as um, periods of frenzy. You know, frenzy of shopping, frenzy around uh, New Year's. Um, This is what a, a friend of mine wrote about this aspect of our culture. This is, some of you know Diana Winston, who's a spirit rock teacher, and some of you have studied with her in Los Angeles. And she wrote this, uh, uh, an essay called Speed. And I'll read it in a speedy way. (laughs) I don't have time to write letters, read books, visit my friend, play with my little brother, Kiss, touch, sigh, dance, relate, eat ice cream, make music, cook, pray, smell, meditate, take a walk. My God, make it all stop. I don't have time and it's running out and I'm running fast and furiously and I want it to stop. Ouch, it's painful. Why won't it stop? Can you make it stop? My God, what's wrong in this country? Have we all gone crazy? Are we insane? We've lost touch. We've lost touch. We've got to stop this endless running around. All I want to do is slow down, just crawl into bed and rock myself to sleep. Not this craziness, not this crazy running about. I'm so tired. Please, somebody, you have got to help me to stop. And that was written in 2000. (laughs) And things have uh, only gone in one direction. (laughs) And so we can relate to that. And we we can, uh, I think we have with our decisions to come here, in a sense, decided to stop. Stop for a while. And yet we could really wonder, you know, given the state of the world, why should we stop? The the world's problems, which many of you are engaged with, are really um, in need of tremendous uh, response and action. And why come on a retreat? Shouldn't you take your free time and help with one of the many areas of um, great need, you know? Don't just sit there, do something. And you probably heard one of the responses to that is, don't just do something, sit there. Which is really, I think, pointing to a way that they actually can um, go together. It's actually, um, actually very important as someone who has um, been involved a lot with developing training programs to connect spiritual practice with social engagement, social service, social action. There's something very special about this um, um, rhythm of uh, stopping, finding renewal, and then returning. That is very, very precious and actually necessary, I think, for sustainability for anyone who is active in the world, we actually need these times. That's the response to uh, that earlier kind of uh, question that I asked. The uh, British historian Toynbee once said that the core of cultural creativity particularly with um, individuals, 
who make great contributions is that there are cycles of withdrawal and return in their lives where there can be renewal, where they can see more clearly, where we can develop um, capacities that are really crucial. And that, that's what we're doing. You know, think of um, something like even, I mean, the life of Nelson Mandela. His withdrawal was not chosen by him, but there was something like that cycle there. You know, and there, there was change in his life and development. And then at a certain point he returns and, you know, in a sense the world is not the same. Certainly that part of the world. You know, whatever the limitations of what's happened, there's something that has been uh, honored recently in, in pretty much the whole world. It was really remarkable to see, maybe like some of you, uh, to see um, films I, saw some, I remember seeing some films of school children in India having signs honoring Mandela. It's quite, um, quite remarkable. And so we have this uh, process, really, of leaving our everyday lives, our everyday habits, and in a way, especially in relationship to the solstice, we are, we are stopping and we are, uh, in a sense, being like the earth. And it really relates very much to the, uh, the core nature of our practice, which is that first, in a sense, for the purposes of training, we withdraw from the habitual. You know, in the uh, classic text, on the foundations of mindfulness, the instructions are, go to the root of a tree or an empty hut, go into the forest. And in a way, we leave the familiar and we come to a uh, place where here, with a lot of support from others, we cultivate a kind of solitude. It's interesting, this is, this is more of the Chinese model of uh, meditative practice. The Indian model is more that of being in solitude, just going off in the woods and practicing. And that still is there in um, much of Southeast Asia. The Chinese wanted to do it in groups. So group sitting meditation actually, especially develops in that context. And we have found a lot of resonance with that. There are, there are a lot of uh, similarities with Chinese culture, sort of the emphasis on community and a certain practical uh, basis. And so we come together here and we cultivate solitude in the midst of others. We cultivate this solitude hanging out with more people than we normally hang out with. It's really, it's really interesting. It takes a little, for some of us, it takes a little bit to get used to, right? <laughs> How do I cultivate solitude with all these people around? <laughs> Um, but we, we do that. We, we come here. First, we find a suitable place to really examine our own minds and hearts and bodies. And that's what we do in this practice that we sometimes call mindfulness, 
which is the basis for our insight practice. We probably should call it not so much mindfulness, but mind, heart, body fullness, which one can't whistle quite as well as mindfulness, but, but it's more accurate actually. Mindfulness can be confusing. It's really about the fullness of all of our experience, being present in a full way with whatever's there, with all the elements of our experience. So we find a place where there's some ability to look inward without we, we um, are separate, we might say, from action context. We don't have to do anything other than pay attention to what's there. We cultivate a kind of uh, inwardness. And we um, first start, as we did this morning, with stabilizing our attention. Coming from being very active, as was the case for for most of us, we have to um, we have to have to help our attention to be able to stay with whatever we focus on, and when we are distracted or we're coming from just a, a lot of activity, it's very natural that that's hard. And it's it's hard for many of us in daily life, and and. We know from our groups and just from our own experience that for a lot of people today, the experience was out of a very active mind. Would anyone relate to that statement? Yeah. And a very active mind and just happening. You, know? you say, mind, stop. Just be with the breath. And it smirks at you. <laughs> And so we uh, stabilize attention and that can take a while and it's something we keep coming back to. You know, the essence of this practice is repetition. It's keep coming back to um, be, in this case with the breath, after the mind has wandered. We keep doing that over and over again to be able to have our attention be stable enough to look carefully at experience. And we do that often at the beginning of every sitting. It may be our, the major part of our practice for a while. I think it was my, the center of my practice for my first three years of practice was just learning more stability of mind. When we have uh, a certain degree of stability, we start bringing attention and we'll give instructions further instructions on expanding our awareness um, tomorrow, next few days. We start bringing our stabilized attention to whatever is predominant. And what that means is we bring it to thoughts, to emotions, to uh, body states. And we learn to develop a sense of presence. We learn to, to have a sustained attention. This is from uh, Mary Oliver, a poem about attention. It very much relates to also to the solstice theme. Who made the world? Who made the swan and the black bear? Who made the grasshopper? 
The grasshopper, I mean the one who has flung herself out of the grass, the one who is eating sugar out of my hand, who is moving her jaws back and forth instead of up and down, who is gazing around with her enormous and complicated eyes. Now she lifts her pale forearms and thoroughly washes her face. Now she snaps her wings open and floats away. I don't know exactly what prayer is. I do know how to pay attention, how to fall down into the grass, how to kneel down in the grass, how to be idle and blessed, how to stroll through the fields, which is what I've been doing all day. <laughs> Tell me, what else should I have done? <laughs> Doesn't everything die at last and too soon? Tell me, what is it you plan to do with your one wild and precious life? So we learn how to pay attention like that. And it does, as the practice develops, um, give us tremendous insight and guidance about this one wild precious life. You know, that listening in the silence, the paying attention, has the potential really to, when we stay with our experience, to both um, resolve unresolved issues as we liberate what we might call our intuition, and also to go deeper, to see from a deeper perspective. So we pay attention, and that then, with that sustained attention, and the cultivation of the heart, as with the loving-kindness practice, we're developing compassion. On the basis of that attention, and our good hearts, Moment to moment, we respond as skillfully as we can to what, what's happening in our experience, whether it's a response um, on the cushion in meditation. You know, like we say, my left shoulder has a dagger in it. How should I respond skillfully and mindfully? We probably don't say that. We probably say, how do I get rid of this, <laughs> right? But we, um, on the basis of that attention and the good heart, the essence of our practice is to be able to respond skillfully moment by moment. Again, whether it's in meditation or in the flow of daily life or in a interaction with another person or in a difficult social situation. This is why we practice. It's not so much to be calm or to have a sense of bliss, or to have, um, even to have insight. The essence of our practice is to be able to respond skillfully with wisdom and compassion to whatever's occurring. That's really it. That's why we practice. A friend, uh, and I were talking a few days ago, and she told the story of a former Burmese nun whom she had met just a few weeks ago, uh, who lives in uh, Southern California, and had been a nun in Burma, had actually be in, had been imprisoned for some time, had come to the US, and they were talking about mindfulness, and this, former nun said, 
in very simple English about this practice, mindfulness brings dignity to a human being. I think it's the dignity really that comes from being able to pay attention, to stay with things and to respond skillfully. And so as we practice today, typically the first day is hard and there are different challenges that are there. The mind gets distracted. The body can feel unaccustomed to all this sitting. I'm sure many or most of us can relate to that. There are aches. There are previously unknown sources of intense sensation. Where did that come from? <laughs> you know? And we learn how to respond skillfully. Or we may have uh, aversion. We may really not like something. We may not like, I don't know, something that was served for a meal. We may not like the fact that um, we're too crowded in the hall. I would like it like about... 10 feet between me and the next person. Or it could be anything. You know, our mind can be aversive. Or we might be restless. We might have unresolved issues from outside and they just stay with us. And how do we work with all these? We may have doubts, right? I don't really get this mindfulness. Maybe I really should have gone backpacking for these five days. too late. <laughs> and so we try, to, we try to respond skillfully to those states. The first, the starting point is just to be mindful with them, to really uh, notice and be with that quality of restlessness or aversion, or maybe we really want something to be a certain way, or we have doubt to just use the label that John was mentioning this morning and say, okay, doubt's arising or a strong emotion is arising. What's it like? What's it feel like? I'll come back to that uh, later. I want to go into a little more depth with that a little later in the evening. So we develop the mindfulness and then we also learn how to skillfully respond to difficult states. And I'll, I'll, I'll say more about that later. The winter solstice and this time of uh, embracing the dark, inviting the light as we're calling this time, can in addition, can really build on that sense of our practice to give some particular illumination. And I wanna talk about those two themes, embracing the dark and inviting the light in a few different ways. I'm going to talk about darkness first as something that we learn to embrace and talk about darkness in probably four ways. The first is darkness as being like the earth, as stopping. 
The second is uh, darkness as a kind of not knowing. We say we're in the dark. We're not, we don't know. We're unclear. The third is uh, darkness as the difficult, another way we use the word darkness in our language. And the fourth is about the darkness as generative, much like the earth. The earth is in darkness, but there's there's uh, something happening that will be generative. It's darkness as generative and fertile. So you can see that there, darkness itself is not either good or bad. They're just these different qualities. So first, um, darkness as kind of stopping and being still, much like the earth. This is something that is really um, a very ancient basis for looking more deeply, that people for thousands of years have stopped their everyday lives, gone into the wilderness in some way, stopped, looked more deeply. This is from uh, John Tarrant, who wrote a very beautiful book called The uh, the Light Inside the Dark. He, he says this, the ancient basis of spiritual practice is always stillness and silence. We may sit under a tree cross-legged. <clears throat> we may sit under a tree, sit cross-legged in a quiet room or by the fire. The important thing is that we turn towards an intense inwardness. Then their silence comes to us out of the dawn of the world. From the earliest band gathered on the sandstone cliffs looking for the sun to rise from the hunter waiting in the spiniflex grass for the kangaroo holding the spear out of sight in his toes. We are at the water hall at dawn. The beasts arrive and drink and leave, yet we remain. Thoughts, memories, sorrows, excitements, they rise and have their time and fall away. We seek deeper into the silence. So that's our practice here. We are in that sense, like the earth, we use the breath to help the mind become more still, to stop somewhat. And we do this really to, to come back to ourselves, to stop in a sense, and there's all sorts of beautiful paradox in terms of the, these images of dark and light. We stop in order better in the future to move forward and act. We stop in order to move, in other words. We're still in order to later move and act. We're silent in order to more skillfully later speak. We go into this inner process This is from uh, Rilke. All creation holds its breath, listening within me, because to hear you, I keep silent. There's also a way in which we 
or with the darkness in the sense of not knowing. Being with the unknown. It's that quality of beginner's mind that, that John talked about this morning, where we learn how to be present, really, without needing to control what's happening. To have a kind of radical openness to experience, which is not easy. And for many of us, it goes against our conditioning. I think for myself, a lot of, a lot of my early years of practice were seeing the extent to which my favored strategy was to control experience. You know? And it was sobering to see that. Right? Oh my gosh, I'm even trying to control time, which is not likely to succeed. You know? But there was, that, there was that wish. And we learn how to open in this simple but radical way. We learn how to be present with what's there. And it's something that we can do in our meditation practice. Sometimes at the beginning of a sitting, I've, I've said to myself, I don't know what will happen on this sitting and I will just be with it. And that's often been very helpful because sometimes we have our agendas for what should happen in meditation. At least I did. I don't know about you. Does anyone relate to that? Anyone have an agenda for what should happen in meditation? And, and it's really great to see that. We have an agenda for what should happen when something pleasant occurs, which is it should last, generally. And when something unpleasant occurs, the agenda is what? It should leave ASAP. Right? And so this being with whatever's there without controlling while responding skillfully. That, that's an interesting way we navigate that. But just to initially not to think we know what will happen and to be open for what emerges, to be open to the unknown, to what comes, to what stays too long, and so forth to have that quality of beginner's mind. One person I work with often says at the beginning of a meditation, not knowing, not in control. Just to, in a way, uh, set intention, like John guided us this morning to Work with an intention can be a very valuable way to practice, to set an intention. Something like that doesn't mean it's going to be remembered throughout the sitting, but it has an impact. It can really influence things. There's a beautiful quality of being, uh, really the other side of this is really, we call it being open and not having our knowing dominate. Our, our experience. One Zen teacher said, we have to cultivate don't know mind. We have to say, and he would say with an accent, he would say, don't know mind. We have to, have to develop don't know mind. And often a metaphor for that kind of not knowing, maybe stated more positively, 
is the metaphor of listening. That our practice is really a deep listening to ourselves and when we bring it out into the world, it's a deep listening to others. And so our practice uh, connects very easily with these beautiful qualities of empathy, of connection, of compassion, of being able to be with others and, un- and have the intention to understand. It goes very naturally into those qualities. The ability to listen deeply is one of the qualities of peacemakers, of people who can actually mediate conflicts. It's what we're learning. We're learning this listening. And it's a very powerful metaphor that's in a lot of different images. Some of you know the great Tibetan meditator Milarepa is often portrayed with his hand by his ear, listening very deeply. Or Kuan Yin, the Bodhisattva of compassion, is said to be she who listens to the cries of the world. There's this sense of listening. And again, that could be a way we start our session, say, I'm going to listen. I'm going to listen to what's, to listen to what's there. And we don't always um, know what will emerge. And we have this sense of really being with the unknown. Beautiful passage also from the poet Rilke. Some of you know this. It was a famous uh, passage from uh, a collection of letters that were called Letters to a Young Poet. Probably some of you know this. It's a very beautiful line. I I always find it uh, somewhat humorous that the young poet was 21 and Rilke was this ancient grizzled 29 when he, when he wrote the letters to a young poet. And this is, this is what he said. And the poet, the young poet was really earnest, idealistic, and wanted pretty much to work out everything in his life, at least by the age of 22. And this is what Rilke said in response. Have patience with everything that remains unsolved in your heart. Try to love the questions themselves like locked rooms and like books written in a foreign language. Do not now look for the answers. They cannot now be given to you because you could not live them. It is a question of experiencing everything. At present, you need to live the question. Perhaps you will gradually, without even noticing it, find yourself experiencing the answer some distant day. There are qualities of patience and of this continual listening is what we cultivate in, a, in our practice. There's also the sense of darkness as, as difficult, as being with, the, being with the darkness is in part to be with the difficult. And it's one of the great powers of our practice that we learn very skillful ways of being with difficult states of mind and body and heart. This is one of the great fruits and it's you know, one of the reasons why uh, mindfulness and insight practice are being brought into secular and professional contexts very rapidly, for example, into psychotherapy. A lot of very powerful methods to work with difficult states. And we, this is part of what we're learning. And again, it's not what we may have signed up for. When I originally started meditation, I thought it would be bliss and understanding. And I would 
stabilize at a certain level of bliss and understanding. And that would be, you know, I started in my 20s. I thought definitely by age 30 that would happen. (laughs) And then, you know, as it were, the rest would be dessert. And I would help the world based on my stabilization in bliss and happiness and wisdom. (laughs) So... It worked a little differently. And um, I think I still have some similar motivation. Uh, but it, it was a little overly um, naive. And um, I think my early retreats alternated between bliss and understanding on the one hand and difficulty on the other. Like, meaning fear a lot or anger or self-judgment preoccupying uh, my attention and having to hang out with that stuff. And this is, this is part of what we do. We, we are with difficult states of the body at times, difficult states of mind, difficult states of the heart, it's not like we uh, take uh, a masochistic approach and say, okay, let's just have a bunch of pain right now. But it's more that when it arises, we see how to be with it skillfully. Sometimes being with it skillfully is being present with, let's say, with difficult physical sensations if we can stay balanced and we know it's not causing damage and watch our conditioning that wants us to get rid of anything unpleasant immediately. Very, for me, very illuminating to watch that. You know, and it's connected with the fact that one of the major areas of application of this practice has been in the area, actually the first major application was for people with chronic pain because they could be taught how to be skillful with that pain. And really, there's a, there's a teaching which really uh, illuminates that. And it's, it's, a, it's one of my favorite teachings, if not my favorite teaching. And those of you who know me have heard this because I give this teaching every other talk. A little exaggerated, but not quite. So and this is the teaching called the teaching of the two arrows. And it's powerful. And often when I work one-on-one with people and they're going through difficulties, this is the lead teaching. And the teaching goes like this. The Buddha was with a group of practitioners and he asked a question. The question was, everyone experiences the unpleasant or what we could call pain, whether that person is a practitioner or not a practitioner, how do the two differ? And apparently he didn't get a really good response, so he answered it himself. (laughs) And his answer was this. Everyone is, as it were, um, sometimes with pain, sometimes with the unpleasant. We have unpleasant experiences in the body. We have unpleasant 
emotions, difficult emotions, difficult mind states. We're sometimes treated unfairly. Sometimes there are difficult things which happen in relation to the natural world or socially that affect us. And everyone experiences that at times, some more than others. And the Buddha said that was like being shot by an arrow. And he called that the first arrow. We can, we can say that that is a certain degree of pain in our lives. The difference between the practitioner and the non-practitioner is how one responds to pain or to difficult states, unpleasant states. The non-practitioner will tend, when the first arrow is present, to shoot a second arrow at oneself or others or both as if that would help. That second arrow we can call uh, reactivity. It's reaction. It's when we have unpleasant sensations in the body and we tense. And that tense, that tensing with people with a lot of pain can be chronic and stressful. That's why there was that application to people with chronic pain to help them learn not to continually react with the pain. In other words, not to shoot the first arrow, not to shoot the second arrow, I should say. And we often react with emotions. I think we know this very clearly interpersonally or maybe even just on our own. I have a difficult experience occur and I blame myself, I blame another, I respond back in anger and so forth. Those are all, we might say, reactions. That Those are all examples of shooting the second arrow. Someone says something mean to me, I react right back. That's shooting the second arrow. A lot of social conflicts are two people or two groups shooting second, second arrows at each other. One group has received pain from one, another group. It inflicts the pain on the other group and we have a sustained conflict or a war. And what the Buddha said is it's possible to learn not to shoot the second arrow and this is right at the heart of our practice. It's possible to learn to be with what's difficult physically Again, when it's not causing damage, but when it's just there. And to do so with more relaxation. As part of our practice, we learn how to be with difficult physical states in a more relaxed way, even though we might not like it. But we learn to, that's part of our practice. We learn how to do that at times. When we can do it in a balanced way, just to be with that maybe low-level knee pain or to be with a pain in the shoulder and just be with it and watch the reactions, the thoughts that want it to go away, the tensing, and say, can I just relax into that? And we probably can see it more clearly with emotions. We learn how to be with difficult emotions, with difficult thoughts. We can be with anger or with sadness or with fear And we can just be with it without it necessarily proliferating. We can notice and be mindful of the tendencies to shoot the second arrow. Let's say with a thought, something difficult happens, 
and I start judging and blaming myself, right? That's shooting the second arrow. I can notice that with mindfulness and stop shooting it. And when I work one-on-one with people, the most common and most significant, I think, guidance I give is really watch your tendency to tell negative stories and believe them and feed them. That's shooting the second arrow. And learn not to do that, which sometimes means being with the first arrow without shooting the second arrow. And this is also applicable socially. I think the essence of the nonviolence of Gandhi and King is saying, we have received the first arrow in the form of oppression or in the form of pain that we've received. We will respond forcefully to the situation, but we will not do so by shooting a second arrow at you, at the oppressor. Very radical uh, approach, but in my mind, completely the same as what we do when we're with the knee pain. Do you see that connection? It's quite interesting to me that, that this is a general approach which can clarify individual meditation practice, interpersonal relationships, as well as how we respond socially to what's happening. So it's quite, quite beautiful. And so sometimes we have to do that. Sometimes we have to be with the difficult. From the poet Yeats, now that my ladder's gone, I must lie down where all the ladders start in the foul rag and bone shop of the heart. (laughs) Sometimes we need to do that just to be with what's difficult. It's something which goes against a lot of our conditioning, which is to not want to be with what's difficult, but to get rid of it as soon as possible. And it's also a very strong social tendency. This culture doesn't want to be with what's difficult, doesn't want to be with our problems really in an honest way. That'd be, that's my perspective based on looking at things a lot. <laughs> so, And so we've learned how to practice with darkness as the difficult. And as we stay with it, the darkness starts to open up to light. That when we stay with darkness, there can be something that we learn very deep, that being with the difficult has the potential to be what I was calling generative or, or fertile. I think we often know that sometimes, this is usually after the fact, when we've been with something really difficult, there can be incredible learning that comes from it. I was thinking of one friend who has um, a son who's had a lot of difficulties learning disabilities, uh, I won't even go into it, I think, uh, but you know, there was uh, sexual abuse, a lot of incredible challenges and incredibly um, intense as a mother to be with that. You know, now an adult has had difficulties with, uh, at times with alcoholism, has nearly died in a car crash, and his mother, who's a close friend of mine, has stayed with this. This is like her being with the darkness. And out of that has come tremendous, she stayed with it, right? And it's come tremendous insight and compassion and love and balance and equanimity. I think we know that, right? That when we stay with what's difficult, 
we stay in a sense where the darkness and light comes out of it. And we can um, learn better how to do that. We, have, we may have a sense, even here, as we are with something that is difficult, we may have a sense that something, that there is light that is nearby, that the darkness as the difficult opens up to light. This is a poem from uh, Jim Bates, who's uh, connected with Spirit Rock, that he gave me the permission to read. It's really, it was actually inspired by the winter solstice. It's a poem called What I Have Buried There. It's about the light coming out of the darkness. My own personal darkness somehow glows with a faint light of something promised, of something that lies with all the tortured parts awaiting my return. Something so precious and real that no matter how dark and entombed, no matter how deeply consigned, no matter the imagined pain, I have no way forward but through that. Tired finally of running, accepting now that I am caught, lying wrapped in hot blankets of forgotten ache, I discover some wider definition of what I thought it was that lives there. Within it, I sense what? I sense the very thing I wanted so badly that not having it, I burned and blackened all its traces. I grew the darkness around it, then pushed it out into the world to make it not mine. All that I rejected felt like black stones behind me to be gathered up by the growing shadow until I stopped and turned and waited, allowing the seeing of it. I cannot yet say what it is, that slight glow, but just its presence lends an understanding, a knowing of something deeply real, of something I never really lost. Excuse me? <laughs> it's a little long. Uh, maybe, maybe at the end or maybe tomorrow morning. But I'll read the... Uh, I'll read the beginning and the end, okay. My own, yeah, there's a lot there, isn't there? There's a lot there. My own personal darkness somehow glows with a faint light of something promised, of something that lies with all the tortured parts awaiting my return. Tired, finally, of running, accepting now that I am caught. I sense the very thing I wanted so badly that not having it, I burned and blackened all its traces and grew the darkness around it. All that I rejected fell like black stones behind me to be gathered up by the growing shadow until I stopped and turned and waited, allowing the seeing of it. I cannot yet say what it is, that slight glow, but just its presence lends an understanding a knowing of something deeply real, of something that I never really lost. Maybe I can post that. Jim Bates on the Spirit Rock staff. He may have helped you with your luggage. (laughs) So... So... Really the same theme, though, of needing to be with what's difficult, and out of that comes light. And that's, uh, we find that. We find that uh, in all sorts of ways. You know, uh, I was thinking of 
my father was blind the last 27 years of his life. And there was a way in which as he was blind, something grew in an inner way. He actually got really interested in meditation. We did some retreats together. It was very moving. Sometimes we do retreats and I would help him navigate everything. And there are those images. Some of you know in the old uh, Greek plays, there is the figure of Tiresias, who is the blind seer. His blindness has led to wisdom. There are, the, there are these fruits. So out of our stopping, out of our being with the unknown, being with difficulties, things happen, things develop. A line from Rilke, one moment your life is a stone and the next a star. The Japanese haiku writer Basho, in the utter darkness of a moonless light, a powerful wind embraces the ancient cedar trees. And so we gradually find ourselves opening to light, opening to more light, opening light in the sense of insight or illumination. And we also in our practice deliberately invite the light. It's part of our practice that we cultivate really qualities we might say of light, our mindfulness, the loving kindness, wisdom, insight, equanimity, joy, love. We deliberately cultivate these qualities. This is an essential part of our practice. You know, sometimes I think that the essence of our practice is maybe one half going into places where we get stuck, which are kind of hard, which are, you know, we get, they're difficult. And then one half going into beautiful states. And it's actually important to be aware of the proportion that we have in our practice. If we've been too much with the difficult, we can get unbalanced and we need to cultivate the light, cultivate the beautiful. Um, Sometimes in difficult time, people I've worked with, they mostly just cultivate joy or loving kindness. Meditation instructions I give sometimes when people are like that, spend one hour with beauty every day. <laughs> Music, art, the forest, you know. This is part of, our, part of our development. And so we, we open up to, to the light in these different ways and we start to touch um, um, an inner light. It's a common sense in many traditions that uh, part of our nature has the quality of luminosity. We can have a sense of that sometimes when there's peace and quiet. We can have a sense of our luminous um, inner nature. Common metaphor used by the Buddha, he said, our minds and hearts are inherently radiant brightly shining when we don't have the usual habitual conditions there, the usual usual habitual mind. There's a radiance which starts emerging. 
And we can experience that through our mindfulness, sometimes through the loving kindness. It's said that the, when the heart is deeply informed by loving kindness, it shines and glows and, radiate, and radiates like the moon. And there is a um, traditional practice in Tibetan tradition of reciting at the solstice a text called the Prayer of Samantabhadra. In that, in that tradition, Samantabhadra is taken to be what's called the primordial Buddha, the embodiment of a kind of timeless, luminous awareness. And at the solstice, one recites this text. I thought I'd just read a few lines, not the whole thing, but the ones that are particularly related to this theme of darkness and light. And this is Samantabhadra speaking. I am, I am unobscured by the darkness of mindlessness. And think of this quality of luminosity. I am unobscured by the darkness of mindlessness. Therefore, self-appearance is unobscured. If self-awareness remains in place, there is no fear. There is the unceasing lucidity of awareness. Through my aspiration, may the thick mindless obscurity of all beings be dispelled. Yay. And so just to close, uh, sort of to review a little bit, again, I love the uh, paradoxes that we stop in order to later move. We enter into a period of unknowing so that we might come to insight. <laughs> you know, we are with the difficult so that there can, in the long run, be ease. You know, and that out of the dark um, comes the light. Maybe just closing, I want to close with um, another poem. Maybe I'll go do a different one than I was going to. This is a, this is a short, beautiful poem about darkness and light by uh, Pablo Neruda. I think it summarizes my talk. If, you, if your mind wandered during part of the talk, I'll post this and it will summarize my talk. <laughs> if each day falls inside each night, there exists a well where clarity is imprisoned. We need to sit on the rim of the well of darkness and fish for fallen light with patience. If each day falls inside each night, night, there exists a well where clarity is imprisoned. We need to sit on the rim of the well of darkness and fish for fallen light with patience.
So if you wish in your practice to use maybe as uh, remembrances at the beginning of a sitting or maybe at a key moment, just to remember some of those ways to guide yourself that may have resonated about being with the darkness or the quality of patience or fishing for fallen light with patience or uh, not knowing, you know, or being with the mystery or whatever. So these are all uh, perspectives to help guide our practice and potentially very concrete uh, understandings that can be there at, uh, at important moments to guide us. Thank you very kindly for your um, attention uh, and for your, really for your qualities of listening and you probably didn't know what I was going to say. So there's a quality of unknowing and (laughs) listening deeply. So thank you very much for that. And may the practice continue um, tonight and then tomorrow, um, hopefully inspired by these, these uh, qualities of ways of being with the dark, ways of inviting the light. Thank you. We have now a period of about uh, 25 minutes for walking meditation, could be inside or outside. Then we'll come back at nine and uh, we'll, we'll have a, a short sitting, relatively short sitting, and we'll end with uh, chanting um, like we did last night to really close our day. So thanks again. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.